Lord, for what you have done through the ages to preserve these ancient words. We recognize how little we perceive when we hold a Bible in our hands, what you have done to preserve those words, to transmit them to us from one generation to another. We recognize that we are very dull concerning the significance of your written word in our lives and that it is our life. But I pray that by the ministry of your Spirit, through the Word of God to your church, that you will deepen us in the Scriptures today. That we would come to understand more ably and more fully the significance of the fact that you have spoken, that you have written words for us to consider objectively and in a life-changing manner. I thank you for the singing of your church, for the privilege that we've had to worship, and may we continue to do so. And in behalf of any who know not Christ as Savior, we pray for their salvation, that the light of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ would dawn upon them and give them life. For we know that these words are living and powerful and active, that they transform, that implanted in the soul, they give life. I pray that you will show us that work of your word and spirit in your church and drawing people in to the body of Christ and nurturing and sanctifying and changing those of us who know you. We pray to this end and ask that you will here meet with us and strengthen us for your honor and glory. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Some years ago, our family drove across New York City from west to east. We were striving to catch a flight home, and even grizzled warriors of New York City claimed that particular Saturday was one of the worst citywide weekend traffic jams in memory. The entire metropolis seemed to be one tangled mass of agitated drivers doing crazy things to reach their destinations. We were guided on this journey by GPS. It was one of those portable boxes that sits there on the front, and we were able to use that to find our way through, but we learned three lessons along the way. In the juggernaut of New York City, GPS takes you places you don't want to go. The cheery woman's voice speaking to you from the box sends you headlong into harrowing traffic situations without a single word of apology. Just turn here. Secondly, GPS signals are lost when you get in among skyscrapers. This leaves you to rely on intuition, and intuition stinks. It takes turns that feel good. You choose streets that look promising, and somewhat lost becomes very quickly very lost. Number three, we learn that when you finally reach the airport a week and a half later, they do not care that you lost your GPS signal amidst the skyscrapers. You don't get extra credit for that. Well, as we think on that scene, in some sense it illustrates where we are as we come back to 2 Chronicles 34 today. Somewhere along the way, the nation of Israel lost the GPS signal of God's Word. 
God gave His Word to Israel to direct their paths, to bless and rejoice the heart of God's people, to to display God's glory and grace to the godless nations that were around. By feeding on that Word, by following the direction of the Lord, the nations should see there is a God in heaven. He's a great and glorious God. God's Word also steered Israel safely through the harrowing danger zones of pagan idol worship. But as we return to 2 Chronicles 34, the reign of King Josiah, Israel has lost the signal amidst the skyscrapers of the Canaanite gods and goddesses. She's no longer being directed by God's revealed truth. Now, in Israel's case, of course, the signal was not lost innocently. It was willfully thrown out the window because God's Word kept taking them places they did not like. Under the kings Manasseh and Ammon, the nation followed her intuition. Whatever felt good, whatever was popular among her pagan neighbors, that's what she wanted to do. We don't need this GPS from God anymore. We don't need His Word. We'll do it our own way. And if we could go back in time and take a tour of the land during Josiah's youth, walking through the land, traveling through that land, we would look and say, well, what's that over there? I I notice this everywhere that I go, there's these hills. And on the hills are these these kind of rude structures, and there's a a pillar that rises out of this this structure, and and, and, and there's, there's usually people up there, and I'm not sure always of what they're doing. What are these things? Well, these are the altars to Baal and Asherah. These pillars are incense pillars, and the images you see there are idols, and some of the things that are going on under these tree canopies and at these altars we won't talk about. And if you took a tour of Jerusalem, even there in the temple where God chose to reside in glory among His people, there you would see altars and idols and incense poles for the worship of false gods in the temple. In the temple courts, Israel was serving the gods of the nations, not the God of heaven. It was in this godless, hopeless environment that the 16-year-old King Josiah began to seek the Lord. It was in this godless context that at age 20, when he began to rule on his own, he started to lead a campaign to purge the land by tearing down and burning these places of false worship. Places where children were sacrificed through the fire to their gods. Places where all kinds of wickedness took place. Places where the God of heaven was despised in the promised land. And Josiah said, this is not right. As the king of the nation, he went through the land, north and south, through the southern kingdom, through the northern kingdom, and returns back to Jerusalem where he purges the temple. I think there's probably more purging that will take place than what we find here in 2 Chronicles 34. But as king of God's people, Josiah knew that he was duty-bound to honor God's law and to steer Israel to honor it. And God filled his heart with zeal to do it. Yet, tragically, and we, we might miss this 
already at this point in the text of what we have considered, at, as the theocratic head of the state, Josiah had no access to even a single copy of God's law to Israel. Josiah stood boldly for God. But under the reigns of Josiah's godless grandfather Manasseh and godless father Ammon, the copies of Scripture had been lost. The GPS was gone. It had been pitched out the window. The objective written record of God's will had been tragically lost to God's people. And so he returns to Jerusalem in verse 7 from purging the land of idol altars now at the capital city, we see that Josiah does the next thing, and that is to renovate the temple, to strengthen it, to build it up again, to restore there the worship of the true God. Verse 8 of Second Chronicles 34, we find the renovation of the temple, first of all in verses 8 through 13. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan the son of Azaliah, Azaliah and Mashiah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. So he sends these officials to the temple not to do the repairs, but to initiate and oversee the temple's restoration. Well, that's going to take what? It's going to take money. Where does that come from? Verse 9, they came to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim and from all the remnant of Israel and from all Judah and Benjamin from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now the place names may miss us a bit, but what it's saying is this is happening throughout the land. Remember, we have the divided kingdom here. The northern kingdom is never worshipped at Jerusalem, but here we have people from the northern kingdom coming to the temple of God and there depositing their gifts in worship. As well as the people that live there in the southern kingdom and in Jerusalem are bringing gifts to the Levites who are there collecting these gifts in worship. Gifts that will now go for the restoration of the temple. Remember that the northern kingdom, there is some unique freedom at this point to come to worship in Jerusalem because the Assyrian Empire is in steep decline and the next controller of Israel has not shown up yet. The next national power is not there yet. And so we have here a unification of the nation that has been unlike really anything that we've seen since the nation divided. That is the case because of Assyria's problems and losing their hold on Palestine, on this section of earth where Josiah now reigns and begins to unite the people to worship together. So free will giving and glad worship of God is taking place now in the temple, and it's a strong evidence of genuine worship. This money now is put into the hands of Hilkiah the priest. In verse 10, they gave it then to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. So they're in the temple, they're in Jerusalem, and they are working in the house of the Lord giving, uh, that, the, that had been given for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters, the builders, to buy quarried stone and build and timber for binders, that's uh, joints uh, that would bring the beams together, and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go into ruin. 
They had let them fall into ruin. That is the result of neglect. It's been 57 years at least prior to Josiah's reign that the passion of Judah's kings had been to build pagan altars everywhere. They had not been concerned about God's temple in Jerusalem. They had let it fall into disrepair. It was in bad shape. Josiah tears down the pagan altars throughout the land and returns now to Jerusalem to build up the temple, to strengthen it. Now we, as we apply that and we think about its connections to our own situation, we should never equate our church building with the temple of God. On this side of the cross, we are the new temple of God, not a building. But I do think that there is a principle here we should appreciate, and that is that the, of the keen sense of stewardship of God's people. It always shows itself in their houses of worship when worship matters to them. Now that can be twisted, there are exceptions, but all things considered, vibrant churches maintain their properties dedicated to ministry. There's just a sense that this is important. The worship of God is important, and it's evidenced in the, in the stewardship of God's people. And that's very much the case, obviously, here in this Old Covenant situation where God resides in His glory here in Jerusalem. Josiah's zeal for God generates a beehive of activity at the temple. This is a good scene. This is encouraging. Faithful, trustworthy, diligent workers are overseeing and performing repairs on the temple of God. In Jerusalem, where that worship of the Lord should be centered. The syncretistic altars throughout the land and those dedicated wholly to Baal and to the Asheroth, they are being destroyed, they are being ripped down, and God's temple is being repaired. Verse 12, And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of the Kohathites, these are Levites, um, Aaronic priests, to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. So that is, I think, Josiah's tapping the Levites, who had ongoing responsibilities at the temple, and they now perform, uh, they don't perform the repairs, but they oversee the repairs. It's really an exciting scene. God's temple was busy again, at least busy with activity that honored the Lord. And then in this context, there is a stunning discovery, beginning at verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. We don't know where the document was discovered. We don't know why it was stored, where it was ultimately found, or exactly what portion of the Bible it included. It's referred to here as the law of the Lord, and in verse 30, to the book of the covenant. So most conservative scholars believe it was the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. All scholars would say that it was at least Deuteronomy. But it is, it is the law of God, this section of Scripture that had been lost to Israel. 
Perhaps there were other portions of the prophets that had survived, and perhaps Josiah had some access to this, but he doesn't have access to the book of the law, to the details, the written code of the covenant between God and Israel. So what we're witnessing here is a tangible evidence that God is committed to preserving His Word. It would seem that it was all over. His book had been lost. No one knew where one was. The king himself didn't have access to this book. But God preserved it in His own unique way. Those who had destroyed the book of the law, those who had thrown out the Scriptures, they missed this one. It was preserved by the Lord. When we think on this historical line throughout the years, do we recognize, I just wonder, as we hold Bibles in our hands, do we recognize that the preservation of Scriptures has come at the cost of many, many lives? There are people who have died so that we can have a Bible in our laps or on our phones or wherever we access it. Today, it's everywhere, isn't it? There are people that died that you could read the Scriptures in English. And here we see the God of preserving His Word, the God of grace, preserving the Scriptures that they not be destroyed and lost to His people. I can imagine Hilkiah's hands fairly shook with excitement as he held this written Word. It was an extraordinarily sweet providence in verse 15, he, Helkiah answered, said to Shavon the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Helkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hands of the overseers and the workmen. You see what he's doing? He's really got news to deliver here, but he's given him the, the, the work report. We're doing what we're supposed to do. Everybody's being faithful. The job's getting done. The temple's being strengthened again and repaired. But man, do I got news for you. Then, verse 18, Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. Well, that certainly piques the king's interest. What book? And Shaphan read from it before the king. The words of the Lord had been found. The GPS was on again. Israel had now had that written, exact, precise Word of God by which to live. What an amazing, history-altering discovery. Certainly, this would be cause for celebration. Call out the musicians. Assemble at the temple. It's time to, to celebrate the Word has been found. But how does King Josiah respond? Verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. That's not celebration. That's grief. He's mourning and in repentance. What the text written and read indicated was that Israel was far further from the proper course than Josiah had thought. And he tore his robes. 
Imagine a yacht, small vessel out in the ocean, and it gets lost in a storm, and it's driven a long ways from the coast, but it's, it's, it's somewhat within striking distance. If, if the people on the yacht could just find where to go in the storm. But one of the crew members has a GPS and in the hand and in, is jostled in the storm and loses it and it falls and it breaks. Everybody is so discouraged and distraught. How will they ever find land? They could get there if they could just know where it was, but the GPS has been lost. And then it's like somebody grabs the pieces and puts them together and says, hey, I got it back on again. We can, we can certainly open it up, look at it, and, and it'll take us back to shore. And when they turn it on, they find that they've been driven by the wind and the storm so far off course that the limited gas that they have left in the yacht won't get them back to shore. Is it exciting to get the GPS back on? Yes, but when it gives you the truth, it's very, very discouraging. That's, in a sense, the feeling that Josiah has here when he hears the word read. What an exciting thing. God's word has been found. Let's hear what it says. It's read, and this isn't good. This is not good. Through oral tradition, Josiah had some sense of God's will, but hearing the written objective record read to him, Josiah despairs. He shreds his robe as a sign of intense grief and repentance in the face of judgment. Tears roll down his face, we learn later. Verse 20, And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Asiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. We are out of sync with His word. Find out from God where we stand what to do. Now, time out here. I mean, as, as Americans, certainly as Western individualists, we look at this and say, this isn't working for me. Uh, if, if you're anything like a normal American citizen, you're thinking, listen, it's okay, Josiah. God knows you are brokenhearted about Israel's violations of the covenant, but your Bible was lost. God will not hold you accountable for that. It's not your fault. Yeah, send, send the prophet, that's, send to the prophet, that's good, but the prophet will certainly tell you, you cannot hit a mark you cannot see. In verses 22 and following, we see that there is an approach to Huldah the prophetess who declares judgment on Judah. Verse 22, so Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokhath, son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. She delivered, the, the king's message is delivered to her. We don't know anything about, more about Huldah the prophetess, simply that she was a prophet. She received word from God concerning truth to his people. Her husband, whether... 
the keeper, the priestly robes or the royal wardrobe, we cannot know, but she lived near the temple and near the king's palace. And so they pursue her, and she delivers this message to Israel. Verse 23, she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, that is, tell the king, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah. Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands, therefore my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. So we go back to that objection. You can't hit a mark you can't see. How can you hold Josiah accountable for laws he he, he doesn't have any access to? What we need to do here is think in covenantal terms, not in terms of Western individualism. As God's people bound together by God's covenant with them through the ages, Israel was responsible to keep, to copy, to preserve, and to honor God's written word. Israel had failed to do that. There were terms of the covenant Israel was responsible to keep, and it was no excuse that she lost the record of those terms. In fact, losing that record is a strong proof of her failure to honor God's law. We have college students heading back to college this week. Think in those terms. You're in a college setting. You lose your course requirements and you show up at the final with only half of them complete. Do you imagine the prof is going to say to you, well, if you misplace your requirements, how could you possibly complete them? So I'll give you an A for trying your best with what you had. I mean, it's all you had to work with. You lost the requirements. We'll, We'll give you a passing grade for it. Is that going to happen? Isn't it the fact that losing the requirements is some indication that you really didn't take the course as seriously as you should? That it really didn't matter as much to you as it ought to? That's more the situation here. Say, well, Josiah, you can't can't keep what you don't know. Think in corporate, covenantal terms. This isn't all about Josiah. This is about the people of God, and through the years, they have been throwing the GPS of God's Word out the window One by one, the text of Scripture has been destroyed. And the full weight now of Israel's failure comes crashing down upon Josiah's conscience. And the prophetess confirms Israel's pending judgment according to the terms of the covenant. Israel has broken God's law. There is only one possible response. But, the corporate aspect aside, God does consider the individual as well. And we see that beginning at verse 26. Huldah says, But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard. Because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants. And you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. 
God would deal mercifully with King Josiah. But the history of this nation's infidelity prophesied that she would once again violate the word of God. She would once again disregard what God had said. Josiah's reforms notwithstanding, Israel would again fail by breaking covenant, turning to false gods, and failing to represent God to the nations as the all-wise God of glory and grace. How does Josiah respond to this news? What does he say? Does, Does he pout? Does he gloat and say, well, I'm okay, I'll kick back and take it easy? There's no fatalistic response here. Josiah continued to rule over God's people as a king who was responsible to enforce Israel's covenant with the Lord. And we see that Josiah covenants then to keep God's law, beginning at verse 29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. There was indeed a gathering at the temple. It wasn't a gathering to celebrate this great archaeological find. It was a gathering rather to bring here the people of God, that there might be a hearing of His Word. Josiah reads the Scriptures to them. He is the king. He is the one responsible to lead in this way to make sure that Israel honors this Word. And so he reads the Scriptures to them. Josiah could have said, you know, the nation's doomed. God has declared His pending judgment. There's no point in calling the nation to obedience. Yes, God's Word sometimes takes us places we don't want to go. But Josiah knew that God's Word is our life. And so he brings that Word even to the people who are condemned by it. We're also reminded here that the reading and consideration of those words are a community project. I thank God for that community project that went on here today in the words that we sung. Continually coming back and bringing emphasis to God's revealed Word to us. Then as we read the text of Scripture, as we consider its implications, and as we work together to understand how God exhorts us in His Word. In all of this, there is a a communal, a a body-life task to consider God's truth. Now obviously, in their setting, there were no photocopies that Josiah could just pass out and say, everybody take your copy of God's Word and go home and read it on your own. They didn't have that ability. But nonetheless, the history of God's people reveals that the Scriptures are to be shared and considered in assembly with God's people. Do we recognize how unique is our situation? There are many times when the Scriptures would be deposited at the temple, in a synagogue, a place to which people would go to hear the Word of God read. Now their brains were trained so far differently than ours. When they heard that word read, much of it stuck in the brain. 
And they were given to memorizing the Word of God and hearing it orally. They could bring back large portions of it quite naturally, quite easily. We would see it that way. They had to work at it, like we have to work at keeping track of our computer documents. But often it was a going to a place to hear the Word of God read. We go through the medieval period in church history, and many times it was in the church building where the only copy of Scripture was chained to some post. And people would go, they could take a Bible home and read it, but they could go there and it could be, they could hear it read, and maybe many times even not being able to read. We have this unique privilege of being able to read the Scriptures on our own, but let's not lose in that the communal aspect of the reading of Scriptures as well. What a wonderful thing it is for us to be able to be involved in private devotion. But let's remember that the book of Scripture, the Bible, is all, has always meant to be a book of the people gathered together to hear the word of the Lord and to respond to that word together. What Josiah did in the temple courts that day, the local church on one level is to do routinely in assembly, to read God's word together and say, this is what God says. So we, as a church, do not apologize for lengthy sections of Scripture, for lengthy readings of the Bible. And perhaps in this day, in many people's view, that takes too long. It's too detailed and too complicated. May we ever, as a church, remember that God's Word is our life. We read it together. We consider it together as we do also privately. Verse 31, the king stood in his place and he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. This is the king. The king says, I will stand as the theocratic head and I will represent God to his people and I will be faithful to this covenant. I will be faithful to my calling. There's no equivocating in his heart. He vowed before God to remain faithful to the law, to create no idols, to serve no gods, but the one true and living God. He covenanted to honor God's name and to keep the Sabbath holy. He vowed to honor his parents, to commit no murder, adultery, or theft, and to not covet or lie. More broadly, he covenants to be loyal to God and to serve as the king of God's people by enforcing their obedience to God's law. Enforcing it. In this setting, under this covenant, that's what it took. Then, verse 32, he went to work. He made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it, southern kingdom, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God and the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. It's not to say that they earned their salvation this way. It's not to say they perfectly fulfilled God's law for no one ever could. It's not to say everyone in the nation was faithful to the covenant. 
It is simply to say the nation largely remained faithful to God. They did not serve false gods during the reign of Josiah. At least it was not encouraged. It was not accepted. The official policy was we are a nation that serves the Lord of Scripture. And this is indeed one of the most thorough reforms in Israel's history. Much of the nation, north and south, has been brought together under Josiah's reforms, and they are heeding the covenant with God. This, this is a wonderful scene. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's cause to celebrate. It's, it's, it's a, a wonder to see God work in the midst of such moral darkness. And for a man to rise who has the strength of heart and the love for God to lead his people to do what is right and to be obedient to his word. This is a wonderful scene, and yet, there's a dark cloud that hangs over it, isn't there? Just really can't get away from chapter 34 and verse 24. As Huldah the prophet said, I will bring, God speaks, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants. All the curses that are written in the book that was read before King Judah, before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it will not be quenched. As God looks at the nation, He knows this inherent problem of human depravity. He knows that as He gives His law and calls His people to walk in moral righteousness, that they do not and that they will not. He knows that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is who we are in our sin. And the subsequent history of Israel plays out just as the prophetess says. There is rebellion and there is failure. There is a disobedience to God's Word that comes when Josiah is off the scene. So Josiah was able to orchestrate the outward conformity of the nation for the time being. But inevitably Israel fell back into sin and idolatry. What is this saying to us? What does it mean? If we, if we get a sense of where we stand in salvation history, all of this is a continuing evidence of the need for a king who would mediate a covenant that was written on people's hearts. Not one that was merely external that they would continue to fail to keep, but one that was written on the heart that changed and transformed people. The revealed Word of God, even this written Word of God, points us ultimately to another King. The King Jesus who took on flesh and became the Word who dwelt among us. This King, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, not only removes altars, not only smashes idols, but He changes the hearts of His people. He transforms them and softens them and encourages them that they look at the external written Word of God not as an object to despise, not as a hindrance to their life, but as light on a dark path. 
So Jesus, the Word of God, came and kept God's written Word perfectly. He kept the law. He fulfilled it in all of its aspects. He becomes then the Lamb of God who dies in the place of sinners and who rises from the dead. And by His death, Jesus now mediates a new covenant that includes the blessing of the written Word of God written on soft, tender hearts that say, God, give me Your Word. Guide me. Direct me. And seize in that Word our life. It's by Christ taking our sin and paying its penalty. It's by Christ then ultimately leaving so that He sends His Spirit, that that Spirit nurtures and transforms and tenderizes our hearts to the Word of God so that we keep it in joy. And the result then is a life that feeds on God's Word, driven by the perception that it is no burden, but it is our life. Driven by the perception that the Word of God is all-important, no matter what pressures come upon us in an idolatrous age, no matter what pressures come upon us from the godless world. We say, I will keep God's Word because it is my life. Where does that come from? It can come from a king who keeps whipping you into shape, tearing down your altars, and forcing you to honor the covenant. Or it can come from the ultimate king, our Lord Jesus Christ, who transforms hearts. If you have a love for God's Word, you can know if it's true, it's genuine, that there's a work of God going on right there. Because His Word is so radically oriented against our sinful nature, our natural bent, the desires of the flesh and the mind and the pride of heart that so fills us naturally. Where the King Jesus pays the cost of our sin and transforms us by His Spirit, there comes a love for God's Word that is otherworldly. And yes, it takes us into some harrowing situations. It's taking us as a church into some harrowing situations. There's things that God has said that our world is saying is wrong. There's things that God has said that our world is despising us for believing we look at it with tender heart. We say it's the Word of God. I've got to breathe. The Spirit of God is my breath. The Word of God is my life. Come what may, it might even be a stake, an execution. It's happening all over the world. The Christians who say, I will honor God's Word at the cost of my life because it's more important than life. And What that does is says to the world there's something there worth living for. There's something there that is beyond this pale, this waking world where everything's ordered to how to advance myself and do what I want and get my way, here are people willing to die for what somebody else said. 
Why is that? Because of a new king and a new covenant that transforms the heart and leads us to say yes and amen to the promises of God in union with Christ. We have become people of the book and we have Bibles. Imagine what God has done to provide that for us. But we recognize as well that there are others who do not. And so we pray for light, the light of the written Word of God to penetrate this world and to transform God's people because it's by this Word that we're changed. It gives us new affections. It brings new life. It transforms. And we thank God for it, come what may. Come what may. The book has been found. It's been preserved. And it transforms. And we rejoice. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we give thanks for what You've done. And we're reminded of the wonder of Your purposes and Your preservation of the book that was found by the priest who is cleaning things up. We thank You, Father, for Your grace to us in Christ and the salvation in Him that changes hearts. I pray for anyone who knows not Jesus as Savior among us, I pray that there would be a response to the Word. There would be a response to the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There would be a sense of that. That's me. That there would be a repentant response to the truth that you so love the world that you gave your only Son. Your one-of-a-kind, unique, only begotten Son. To die as a sacrificial lamb so that all who believe will find life in his name. And we thank you for the tender heart to, toward your word that is evidenced in this church, that is evidenced among the people that you have transformed by it. And I plead for this congregation that we would be faithful to that word in the midst of a culture that is incessantly demanding that we let large portions of it go. May we be faithful to the covenant that you have inaugurated with the death of the Lamb of God. May we be faithful to your word. We know that the world won't understand, but I pray that we would never forget how that word has changed us and is changing us. And again, we pray in behalf of those who have not yet seen that truth. I pray that you'd bring them to saving faith even this day. Through Christ we pray. Amen.